Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi, and welcome to what is going to be a brief but serious look at the history of Israel, all designed so that we can try to understand best what's happening today by knowing how everything that we're looking at developed. We're going to look at the first beginnings of Zionism all the way through the creation of the state to what's happening now in 2020. Obviously, though, of course, at a 30,000-foot bird's-eye level, most of the histories of Israel run 600, 800, 1,000 pages. There is a ton to cover, and we're going to try to keep this very, very brief. So we're going to do this from a kind of a 30,000-foot level, but hopefully by the time you've gone through all of these segments, you'll really have a much better idea of why Israel came to be, how Israel came to be, what are the major challenges that it faces, and what its accomplishments are. Now, before we dive into Israel's history, I want to give you an analogy about America. Almost all of the things that we talk about Israel, whenever we have an Israel conversation, we are more or less having a conversation about Israel in conflict. We can ask about occupation, we can ask about annexation, we can ask about what's going on in the West Bank, we can ask uh, what's going on with Iran. Is Hezbollah willing to make a deal? Is Hezbollah not willing to make a deal? Uh, Is this administration good or bad for Israel or is that administration good or bad for Israel? But all of those questions, what they have in common is that they really assume that what Israel is is a conflict. So let me give you an analogy to America. Right, let's say five years ago, uh, when things were a little bit more simple, somebody had come to you and said, I don't live in America, I don't know very much about it, but I do want to understand more about it. What can you tell me about America? What makes America great? And you started out by saying, well, uh, in 1776, there was a war of independence, and then there was a war of 1812, and I'm going to skip if you don't worry, then there was a First World War in 1917, and then there was a Second World, in, Second World War in 1941. Uh, then there was a Korean War, a Vietnam War, an Iraq War, an Afghanistan War. Don't you understand? I mean, America is an amazing republic. And a person would look at you and say, I don't have any idea what America is about from what you just said. And I think we do exactly the same thing when it comes to Israel. We talk about the conflict incessantly. Even though it is critically important, it's not what Israel's about. It's not what Israel was created for. And I think in order to be able to think more meaningfully about the conflict, what we have to be able to do actually is talk more detail about why Israel was created, uh, what its purpose was, what it's accomplished, and so on and so forth. So now let's start at the very beginning. Uh, We know that Zionism as a political movement begins to emerge in the middle of the 1800s, and we'll come back in a minute to why. Uh, And the question is, Where did Zionism come from and why did it emerge when it happened to emerge and not earlier? And I think the best way to put that briefly is that Zionism emerged out of a sense that Jews in Europe had, that Europe had betrayed them. The Jews, of course, had been exiled from the land of Israel twice before. They'd been exiled in 586 BCE by the Babylonians, 
Then they came back some 70 years later. Uh, then they were exiled again by the Romans in 70 CE. And basically, in the mid-1800s, had never, ever gone back. And they've lived all over the world, but the community we're going to focus on, because this is where political Zionism begins really to emerge, uh, was Europe. And Europe was hardly a great place for the Jews to live. Uh, France expelled all of its Jews in 12,054. Spain expelled all of its Jews in 1290 and kept them out for 365 years. Spain expelled the Jews in 1492. Portugal expelled the Jews in 1496. Then, as some of you are probably aware, as we get to more modern period, there were what's called pogroms, which is government-sponsored violence against Jews. And this is picking up throughout Eastern Europe in the 1800s. And Jews, even in Germany, where things begin to look a little bit better and Germany's becoming secular and more modern, even in Germany, when Jews are making their way into the professions, they're becoming doctors and lawyers and academics, still they've come to understand that they're not really accepted, that they are still judged as being not, quote-unquote, real Germans. There are full professions that they're not admitted to. There's lots of things they're not allowed to do. And the image of the Jew in German culture remains relentlessly negative, and the Jews know that they can feel, everywhere they turn, a hatred of who they are. Amazingly enough, this term anti-Semitism, which we've all heard now a lot, is invented by a man named Wilhelm Marr in 1879, and he invents the term because he himself is an anti-Semite, and he's actually proud of it. He says, I don't believe the Jews are ever going to be able to become part of German culture. They're always going to be outside, and I think that's okay. I'm anti-them. I'm an anti-Semite. So what I think we really need to understand is that Zionism is born out of a sense of betrayal, and Zionism is born out of a sense of heartbreak. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Jews had hoped that they might finally find some sort of permanent home in Europe, which was where the vast majority of the Jews in the world lived, and it became clear that even in the modern parts of Europe, and in the western parts of Europe, and the more secular parts of Europe, it just simply wasn't happening. And that betrayal and that disappointment, that anguish and that heartbreak is what led to the earliest, earliest stirrings of Zionist thought. So I want to read you two quick paragraphs by two people who predate really the beginning of political Zionism, which will start with Theodor Herzl, which we'll get to later. But just to give you an idea, in the middle of the 1800s, what people are beginning to say. So here's a paragraph from a man named Moses Hess who uh, lived from 1821 to 1875 and wrote a book called Rome and Jerusalem in 1862. And here's what he said. Because of the hatred that surrounds him on all sides, the German Jew is determined to cast off all signs of his Jewishness and to deny his race. No form of the Jewish religion, however extreme, is radical enough for the educated German Jews. As long as the Jew denies his nationality, as long as he lacks the character to acknowledge that he belongs to that unfortunate, persecuted, and maligned people, his false position must become ever more intolerable. What purpose does our deception serve? The nations of Europe have always regarded the existence of Jews in their midst as an anomaly. We shall always remain strangers among the nations. And uh, 20 years after that, a man named Leo Pinsker writes a book called Auto-Emancipation. Pinsker lives from 1821 to 1891, and he says something very similar. That age-old problem, long called the Jewish question, yet again provokes discussion. This is the kernel of the problem as we see it. The Jews comprise a distinctive element among the nations under which they dwell, and as such can neither assimilate 
nor readily be digested by any nation. The Jewish people lacks the most essential attributes which define a nation. It lacks that authentic, rooted life which is inconceivable without a common language and customs and without geographic cohesion. The Jewish people has no fatherland of its own, though many motherlands, no center of focus or gravity, no government of its own, no official representation. The Jews are home everywhere, but nowhere at home. Among the living nations of the earth, the Jews as a nation are long since dead. Now you might say, okay, that's what the Jews thought, but what did the non-Jews think? So now I want to read you somebody from one quick paragraph, the last one, um, somebody who you know, Mark Twain, who was obviously not Jewish. He was a Presbyterian, but very, very cynical uh, about religion. Uh, he lived from 1835 to 1910, and he writes in 1898, a year after Herzl, we'll talk about that in a little while. Here's what Mark Twain writes in Harper's Magazine. The Jew is being legislated out of Russia. Spain decided to banish him 400 years ago and Austria about a couple of centuries later. In all the ages, Christian Europe has curtailed his activities. Trade after trade was taken away by the Jew by statute till practically none was left. He was forbidden to engage in agriculture. He was forbidden to practice law. He was forbidden to practice medicine, except among Jews. He was forbidden the handicrafts. Even the seats of learning and the schools of science had to be closed against this tremendous antagonist. Have you heard of Theodor Herzl's plan? He wishes to gather the Jews of the world together in Palestine with a government of their own, under the suzerainty of the Sultan, I suppose. At the first Zionist Congress last year, there were delegates from everywhere, and the proposal was received with decided favor. In other words, even Mark Twain understood Zionism. It's fascinating. Mark Twain understood Zionism much better than most people today, much better than most Jews do today. He understood that Zionism was somehow a reaction to the Jews not ever having been accepted anywhere at all. So what was Zionism really? What is Zionism? Zionism was the political movement designed to create, to create a Jewish homeland in the land of Israel and therefore to create a place where the Jewish people could live very differently than they could live everywhere else. Zionism was about saving the Jewish people. That is it, plain and simple. Zionism was about saving the Jewish people in a place where they wouldn't face the pressure to assimilate, they wouldn't have to face the antagonism of anti-Semitism, and they certainly wouldn't face the dangers of anti-Semitism in a physical way. And therefore, I think it's really important for us to know, or to say out loud, that Zionism doesn't make any sense without a love of the Jewish people. If the surviving and the thrival of the Jewish people doesn't matter to somebody, then Zionism is not going to make any sense to them. And I want to say a brief word about where we find ourselves in the summer of 2020 when we're recording this, and to give you an example of what I think is problematic about the world, the Jewish world in which many of us live in America. In the summer of 2020, when we're recording this, we see that African Americans across America are getting behind the Black Lives Matter movement because that is a fundamental expression of their most profound identity. We see people in the LGBTQ movement arguing that their community needs to be given more legal rights and more recognition and so forth because that is their fundamental identity. And African Americans and LGBTQs and all kinds of other groups are perfectly comfortable doing whatever they have to do to promote the thriving of their own culture, their people, their race, their group, whatever it might be. The irony about Jews in America today, I think, is that many of us, certainly not all, 
But many Jews in America are actually much more comfortable advocating for Black Lives Matter or advocating for LGBTQ, which are both totally legitimate and important propositions. They're more comfortable doing that than they are actually advocating for the Jewish people and defending the idea of a Jewish state, even though the Jewish state was actually created for a very similar purpose, which was to allow the Jewish people to thrive and to flourish. Before we wrap up this segment, I just want to leave you with a couple of questions that I know are a little bit edgy, but I think they're worth thinking about. Uh, we all know that China uh, has built actual concentration camps in the last few years for Uyghurs and Muslims, all kinds of ethnic people throughout China. And we know now that the United States government has known about it for quite some time. And now that it's in the press, all Americans who read the paper know about this. China, at the beginning of the 21st century, has actually built and is using concentration camps. But nobody's having a conversation about whether or not China deserves to exist, whether China has a right to exist. Syria has been involved in a civil war since 2011, and the estimates are that the Assad regime, Assad is the head of Syria, has killed probably 400,000 Syrians and about 5 million have been forced to leave their country. How often do we talk about that? How often does it make the American press? And how often do we have a conversation, wow, does Syria have a right to exist? And let's come closer to home. Between 1600 and 1800, one million Europeans, i.e. whites, came from Europe to North America to seek freedom. And in those same years, between 1600 and 1800, those one million white people imported to America 2.5 million stolen African human beings whom they called slaves. One million people brought in two and a half million slaves. Slavery and racism predate America, America's independence that is, by about 150 to 175 years. There's never been a period when America did not have a huge race problem. And thankfully we're trying once again to address it and maybe we'll make some progress and I hope that we will. But is anybody having a conversation about whether or not America has a right to exist? And for those of us watching this who happen to be Americans, does our frustration with the race situation in America say, I want nothing to do with America? No, I think usually it makes us say, I want to roll up my sleeves. I want to lace up my boots and I want to do my part to try to make it better. And for me as an American Jew who now lives in Israel, the frustrating part of our conversation about Israel in 2020 is that so many people will look at America and say, I want to make it better. And though so many people will look at things that they find about Israel that make them uncomfortable and say, either it has no right to exist or I want nothing to do with it. So my hope is that in this conversation, we can discover why Israel was created, what its amazing accomplishments are, what some of its challenges are, what some of the undeniable mistakes that it's made are, and begin to think together about what's the better way or the best way possibly uh, to achieve a best future for the Jews and the Palestinians who live in our area. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordas and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.